Uh, tonight is the very first in a in a new series for us, um, a live reading series, and we're going to kick that off with a five-parter from Noir at the Bar. That's right. Recently, Livius and I traveled down to St. Louis for the Noir at the Bar reading, uh, including Gordon Highland, Caleb Ross, Kevin Lynn Helmick, Mark W. Tiedemann, and Nick Young. We did, hosted by Jed Ayers and Scott Phillips. Um, we had a great time. We, you may have heard us mention and talk a little bit about it on our last episode. But for anybody who hasn't, I'll give you kind of a little bit of our uh, our go around there. Uh, Noir at the Bar is something that uh, you know we'd seen a lot about online and stuff over the last year that we've been doing this. And uh, we had the pleasure of meeting Jed Ayers and Scott Phillips when we were in Corydon, Indiana, on our very first official booked road trip. So, um, yeah, at that point, we kind of decided we wanted to go to Noir at the Bar. So booked road trip number two, took us to St. Louis and right there to the Meshuggah Cafe for this uh, for this reading. Yeah, it was a nice way to kick off the uh, the week long AWP event was um, was coming down to see Noir at the Bar. So we're going to keep it pretty simple and uh, not talk too much. We'll just let the authors be their own episodes. There's a little bit sprinkled in here and there. Uh, Jed Ayers introducing people at the event. Scott Phillips introducing people, talking about stuff. Um, But otherwise, it's pretty much going to be just the authors. And uh, we're doing it in the order that they read. Because of the length of these, we're actually going to be doing um, each author kind of as their own little mini episode. And to kick it off, uh, the first one is... Gordon Highland. Gordon is the author of Major Inversions and the forthcoming novel Flashover. Um, he's been a guest on this show with the Warmed and Bound sessions. And uh, the, for this particular reading, um, I guess we should kind of, this is going to require a little bit of explanation. Um, the very first thing that he read wasn't a reading, actually. It was a voicemail story that he had uh, phoned into his own voicemail. Um, and he kind of held a phone up to the microphone to play that. Um, the quality of that wasn't um, very good, but Gordon was nice enough to actually send us a copy of the voicemail. So the very first thing you're going to hear isn't from the reading. It took place at the reading, but you're going to hear a, a cleaner copy of it. Yep, and then after that, he has two other short stories. Well, one short story, and then he reads us an excerpt, and then he reads us an excerpt actually from Flashover, and uh, that'll be pretty much it for for Gordon on this one. Hope you enjoy it. Here's Gordon Highland. prosecution layer or, you know, blackmail, some nefarious ends, I'm sure. Anyway, uh, I really appreciate having them in. They've been uh, supporters of what we're doing here, and they uh, also are supporters of a group called uh, The Velvet, which is a writing community that I've only been uh, familiar with for the last year or so, but they've been around for a while. Uh, and Caleb and Gordon, uh, who are both reading tonight, uh, and uh, Nick Young, who is all the way from um, South Africa, for uh, 
this event. This is the only reason we came to the stage. But they're all they're all part of that uh, kind of online community, and uh, just like Laura at the Bar published an anthology year, uh, last year, um, the Velvet published their own anthology. It's the first, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. first Velvet collective uh, anthology. It's called Warmed and Bounty. In fact, Kyle Miner has the same story. <laughs> Because uh, he got paid so much for, for Bolo. Anyway, um, so there's actually three authors here tonight from this book. Uh, and Richard Thomas, who I don't know if anybody caught him last year when he read it in the bar, uh, is also in here. Uh, so Richard, Kyle, Gordon, and Caleb all represented. Nick Young as well. I'm sorry. Nick Young as well. And, and, I'm sorry, and Nick Young, who came all the way from South Africa, <laughs> just for this, he heard there was $3 New Belgian beers. And he said, shit, mate. Or, Actually, I think he, he, he had read what his fellow countryman, Robert, Roger Smith, said uh, on the Noir at the Bar anthology, that... It's a collection of drunken scribbles lifted from beer coasters and restroom walls. Dark days indeed when barflies from flyover country are keepers of the noir flame. That was supposed to sound like South Africa and, and not, not Werner Herzog. So. Anyway, he came to set things right. So uh, I just wanted to, to point out that uh, Rob and Livius are here in the recording. So anything you say, anything you blurt out, any heckling you do, which it's going to be recorded. Just keep that in mind. It's, it's going to be preserved forever on the internet. So uh, I'm sorry. Uh, do you want me to just call Gorda? I realized tonight, as we were, uh, as I actually, I realized yesterday, as I was posting a bit online about the event, every damn person here tonight has got a middle initial. It's like a right, I don't have a middle name. I don't. No middle, Nick Young doesn't have a middle name, which is why we wouldn't let him read. He said, I came all the way from South Africa, and he said, but fuck you, you don't have a middle initial. Sit down. You can never be a serial killer. Yeah, yeah, serial killers, country singers, and, you know, velvet enthusiasts uh, have middle initials generally, except for Gordon Highland, which is why we're making him go first. And the evening will proceed in alphabetical order by middle initial. So, Gordon Island is a writer, a filmmaker, a musician out of Kansas City. He uh, has got the books here tonight. Major Inversions and a story in uh, Warmed and Bound, the Velvet Anthology. Gordon Island. Z, pick up it for there, please. All right, well, 
sorry to bother you at home, but you always said not to talk on the cell about um, the extermination business. And those last couple of roaches you sent me after over at that cookhouse, they got me rethinking my whole joie de vivre, you know what I'm saying? That lanky kid with the pirate earrings, Tweaker must have been iced out like three days running. Turned out he was packing chrome and capped me right in the fucking shoulder before I could even clear my throat. I don't know how those process servers do it. I'm going to be jerking off left-handed for a month. Anyway, so I've been talking to Nick Fleming over at the Post-Dispatch, a guy that writes for the crime section. He's been nosing around those bodies stacking up out there in St. Charles. I told him I was going to be calling you with this, and he said I should just start with the most important part and work my way down to the minutiae, like peeling an onion, he said. I guess the idea is that if you're lard, I should keel over before I get to the stuff about Mrs. Z. Well, at least you'd have gotten the gist. He also thought using words like minutiae you'd find insulting, but that ain't my style. Guy's a prick, what can I say? Long story short, I'm out, Z. Retired. Shouldn't have any trouble finding anybody. I mean, economy's in the shitter. There's plenty of glass circulating out there. If you can just keep your crew off the pipe and on the routes, it'll be business as usual. Now that other guy, Jack Sparrow's partner, he didn't fare so well. Heard he burned half his face off trying to flush the lab when some cops came knocking. Now, whether he rolled on you or not, couldn't say. Eh, let's see what else. I guess while I'm in a resignation kind of mood, you ought to know I didn't appreciate you talking to my ex. Fucking threaten our kid like that? The hell's wrong with you? I never disrespected your old lady. Even if she was the kind of gal I could drizzle in marshmallow fluff and take a creme brulee torch to. That shit'll heal. But mine? She's talking about revoking my visitation, man. Now look, I get that my country ass is the last one you want to be seeing. And believe me, it's mutual. I also ain't so naive as to think there's ever such a thing as a clean break in this biz. So I left something over there last time and you can just keep it call it even. Sort of a reverse severance package, I guess. I'm just trying to think what I did with it. Master bedroom, I know that. You on the cordless? Hey, you go in there, and it's under the bed, uh, passenger side. No, 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 wait, wait. Nightstand drawer. Yeah. I would have got it engraved for you, but, uh, well, you understand. You like that? Probably still some butane left in there. Sorry about the smell. Like Cajun pork chops dredged in sulfur. But if you look out the window there, you should be able to see how to get rid of that. I imagine I'm waving to you, yeah? Am I waving? No? That's because my 45 takes both hands, motherfucker. That's a strange voicemail sometimes. <laughs> All right, that's being in the coffee shop here. I, I kind of waffle on what to read. I have two short pieces for you tonight other than that. And uh, since we're here in a coffee shop, I thought I would read this one for you. It's called Untitled Stephanie Meyer Novel. And it's, it's not what you're thinking of. Maybe it is. I don't know. We'll see what happens here. While her son swept through his orange-belted gi in the November air, waiting curbside of the dojo across town, Whitney sleeved her venti caramel macchiato and told the barista she'd see her tomorrow. Feeling a gaze roaming her, she turned to the scruffy man a couple tables away, shimmering in the blue glow of his laptop screen, which bisected a convenient eyeline between himself and her ass. He stroked his graying temple, immersed in it, troubled, until her own stare pulled him, blinking from his trance and into her trajectory. Ensnared, she offered a purse-lipped nod. Anything interesting? She gestured with her cup, then tried to mask her regret at the open-ended introduction with the wince of a scalding sip. 
Me? He asked, clearing his throat and waving it off. Just work. Deadlines start polishing, you know. Uh, a twitch in his cheek and gaps of pale, doughy flesh between the strained buttons of his shirt. Her eyes rolled with empathy. Yeah, I've been known to turn a few sow's ears into self-purchase myself. She was not his type at all. Too lanky, confident, mature. But the thirst of recent weeks in his cooling bed suggested he at least needed the practice for the evening to come. His nostrils filled with her spoiled scent as she passed. A head-turning glimpse of the document captured her regard. The non-title, this title, it blackened the screen in 24-point Times New Roman. Split in two of the letters, a cursor throbbed with possibility. Whitney's own pulse impelled to join its rhythm in perfect blinking sync, glamoured. Is that, she stammered, hand over her laboring lungs, is that what I think it is? He nodded meekly. Are you some kind of ghostwriter or something? An ironic snort escaped his nose. Despite not knowing the difference between a lycanthrope and a misanthrope, a dangling modifier from a split infinitive, he managed, I'm her editor. Oh, wow, so that means you get to read all this stuff in advance? He weighed his hands on invisible scales. Get to, have to. <laughs> Whitney summoned her resolve. Do you think maybe I, I, I could, um, her voice cracked with audacity, I, I, I could read some of it? His face contorted as she radiated, her musk suffusing his space with instinct repellent. Still, he persevered. Sorry, you have any idea how many people are dying to get their mitts on this stuff? She said, I didn't even know there was gonna be another book. Exactly. <laughs> Nearing hyperventilation, so would you mind? She thrust her face toward the screen, squinting. But in that mere peak before the man lowered the lid, all the body text below the title appeared Greek and characters unfamiliar. And in return, what? He rubbed his hands together for effect, wringing from his mind the lecherous scenarios conjured. Oh, come on, it's for my daughter, she lied, as her patient son and only offspring had no defense for the cold he was catching from her tardiness. Whitney lengthened her dress as she felt her appetite subside, replaced for the first time with shame, yet unsure whether it was from her latent adolescent mania over this twilight saga or if it was from the compromises that she might endure to sate it. Mm-hmm. Tell you what, the man called her bluff. Tell her, you bring her by here this evening and I promise she'll get a look. No, I tell you what, I'll go one better. I'll have her written into the story. How about that, huh? <laughs> Whitney backed away for the exit, clutching her purse and shaking her head, violated. The man exhaled with relief as the door chimed, her $5 cup left stranded upon the table in his peripheral vision. He reopened the laptop lid and resumed his pensive, brooding study of the draft. No keystrokes, no page downs, just a zoo exhibit. 10 minutes passed until a tentative voice captured his ear among the din of blending and frothing machinery. That's for you guys back there. <laughs> Strix, right? He drank her in, wondering how he'd overlooked her entrance. Five feet of virtue and featureless femininity, despite her barrel torso poured into a threadbare sweater, a gift, no doubt. Auburn hair grazed her shoulders, brushed with compulsive precision. Her pallor rivaled his own, with maroon lipstick punctuating a sullen face wired for drama. And the thrice-pierced ear and the book-weighted backpack were further indicators that the two might be kindred, even though, at 42 human years, he was also about thrice her age. The man, Strix, claimed himself and gestured for her to sit next to him, which she did with no small degree of eye-darting paranoia. 
the oxygen vacuumed out of the room when his hand touched hers with reassurance, offering to get her something, a chai tea maybe, which she declined. You are exactly how I imagined, Emma, he said, shimmering with the delight that Whitney could not have elicited in her 20 most recent years. She blew bangs out of her eyes. I'm not sure what I imagined, but here I am. You know, it takes a very special girl to, so can I see it? The nymphette twirled gum around her tongue, fumbling through her best flirtatious impression. He recoiled from her unexpected disinterest in foreplay, closed his laptop, and patted the leather satchel hanging from his chair. Emma heaved it onto the table, unbuckling it to produce a ream of manuscript paper, the same non-title dominating its cover page. As she flushed with wide-eyed anticipation, Strix inhaled the apex of her innocence, pure as the winter breeze off the Black Sea. Fanning the pages, her crimson mouth hung open when noticing that each page bore a watermark over the text with her name in large outlined letters. For security purposes, he said. And you understand, you can't tell anybody about this, right? Our secret, she pinched her lips and made a zipping motion, dreading the inevitable call to action and ignoring the adhesive itch that had been burning under her sweater. First, though, he said, reclaiming the manuscript on cue, we'll chill out of my place for a bit and run through a few of those alternate scenes, you know, uh, that little audition that we talked about. If only his heart still beat, his stagnant blood would have ruptured its arterial walls when Emma bit her lip with that embarrassed giggle that he longed to witness in person. Right, new honeymoon. It'll be fun. You like champagne? She shrugged. All right, let's get out of here then. I, I gotta be on a call with Steffi in a few hours. Tucking a wisp of hair behind her ear, she got up and said she had to use the restroom first. Before he could object, she and her backpack were halfway to the mud kiosk. That's when he heard the voices of authority behind him. Face down, on the ground. We will tase you. Andre Vladimir Dalakis, you are under arrest for the solicitation of sex with minors. You have the right to remain silent. I ain't done nothing, the man seethed as he sank to his knees. His lips trembled in silent, dribbling prayer. When finally his face collapsed to the ground as commanded, blood pooled out from his center onto the hardwood floor, impaled upon a silver dagger. Investigators would not know the full extent of Delacus's transgressions or his literary ruse until his laptop returned from the lab, along with the testimonies of three other girls. It's haven't done anything, Emma corrected. <laughs> I thought it would be funny to write a story about a pedophile who uses unreleased Twilight material to lure unsuspecting dudes, only to have it backfire and ensnare middle-aged Twilight fans instead. So that's sort of the director's cut. All right, uh, this is from uh, my new novel coming out probably a couple months or so called Flashover. This is the title chapter, and it takes place about a quarter of the way into the book. And uh, just a quick background, uh, Toby, the main character, he's the guy who's adjusting to the simplicity of small town, uh, rural Missouri life in a small town called Barrow, a fictional town. This is after touring the world in a, in a rock band, uh, so it's quite an adjustment for him. And he, he's, a, he's a handyman who's taking any kind of like work he can get currently doing roofing jobs. And uh, long ago, he was raised by his father, Harlan, who was a door-to-door uh, -door salesman, and he would bring the kid along on ride-alongs. That's not the plot of the book. It's a lot more uh, sinister than that, but that's just what you need to know for this uh, section here. 20 feet closer to heaven in either direction, the cumulus sky with an equal reach as the mortal fall to earth. Boot soles found traction on roof shingles like skateboard grip tape. Ankles straining their tendons to maintain balance as Toby squatted precariously near the eave. 
Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love coursing between his ears. He welcomed the brisk northwesterlies against his stubbled face, relieved from the asphalt's absorbed October rays. His brain completed a perfect euphonic circuit between the in-ear headphones. A patch of tar paper still remained at the summit near the, near the summit of the glittering new roof, but another hour would finish the job. The view perched here atop St. Anthony's Catholic Church was for Toby a more religious experience than anything that could have occurred inside the sanctuary earlier that day. All of Barrow, Missouri within sight, nothing piercing the treetop canopy but steeples of two other churches, the musco lights of the baseball fields, golden arches of fast food, and the powder blue water tower a mile down the highway, America. Toby's own childhood mornings, Sunday mornings, claimed him as a Baptist, though uh, once he was old enough to seek meaning beyond the ritualistic, he suspected that his father was an infiltrating atheist. Outside the church grounds, matters of faith and anything but oneself never entered his paternal monologues, be they mealtime invocations, athletic encouragement, or peaceful reassurances of his mother's fate. Uh, she died in childbirth. No, Harlan's choice of the 1030 weekly service had been purely social. Fellowship always spilled over into lunch invitations where he pressed community flesh and endeared himself, however temporarily. Just a normal father and son on the righteous path, cultivating trust and planting seeds of future sales. As innocence gave way to adult ambition, for Toby, religion proved inconvenient. Road life had existed in the vacuum of insulation and invincibility. All sins were forgiven at checkout time daily, with Gideon awaiting in the next city's hotel drawer. Always the challenge of a fresh set, fresh set of commandments ready to be checked off. The very act of musical performance encouraged idolatry and required a gunslinger's confidence. Toby never rejected the existence of a maker, but he felt that public worship was a formality better suited to soul politicians like his father. Even in the six years since his music career cross-faded into steady daytime employment, his spiritual outlook had remained decidedly agnostic. Now, cut to present. This was the first job that he's done. This is the third job that he'd done for St. Anthony's, and their deposit checks always cleared. Still, Catholics, whenever so revealed, always infused his veins with a medieval unease. While all Christians forever stumble in the shadow of their martyrs' accomplishments, some ascetic defect particular to Catholics amplified their shame to levels that conflicted Toby with sympathy and derision. He traced the origin of this prejudice back to his time living with the devout masseuse Hannah. She was a glorious specimen on God's own highlight reel, but the gift of speech revealed incessantly her belief that all of post-Jesus mankind was born indentured. And this had soured Toby on Catholicism, but he marveled at their architecture, just not this particular church. The pastor said it had been torched by Union troops in 1864, but Toby didn't press him for its complete raising history, as he could tell this was only the current structure's second roof and couldn't be more than 50 years old. A gloved hand waved in his face, and Toby blinked back to attention. He followed the adobe-colored arm until it connected to Javier's sheet, sleeveless, serpentine uh, torso. Gotta watch that sentence there. His 24-year-old frame gyrating in once-white painter's pants with a Latin hustle of triumphant celebration, despite his planted feet. Below his mirrored cyborg shades, his lips were moving, taunting. Javier tapped his radio headphones and thrust his arms skyward in the universal symbol for a touchdown. God damn it, Javi, I told you I don't want to know. Toby slammed his eyes shut and covered his ears, hoping immersion in Robert Plant's learning and yearning would suppress the twinkling scoreboards and pom-poms in the stadium of his mind. Seven games into the season, the Chiefs had not yet been mathematically eliminated from playoff contention. Sorry, boss, Javier pointed to the steeple jutting from the newly shingled ridge cap, a white cross at its peak. But the Lord will like this language, Zomay. 
as if it were God's own antenna, squealing on Barrow's sinners, or improving FM reception for laborers from Oakland. Another Catholic, another lightning rod. Sorry, boss. Toby implored the heavens, appeasing or mocking his helper. Anyway, turn that thing off. We got this thing uh, knocked out, and then it's a base of time. But I want to rewind the first half, so he zippered his mouth shut. You buy it? Hell no, it's my TV. You bring the beer. I got some nachos, though. So I uh, call that Raider-loving wife of yours and ask if she'll uh, blend us up some of their roasted salsa. Grinning and shaking his head, Javier disappeared down the ladder to terra firma. Aluminum clanked against the eave with each step. Toby scaled the roof to the unfinished patch, each cautious step in time with John Bonham's drum assault. He measured and snapped a chalk line, then took up the pneumatic nailer, pumping 38 caliber rounds, semi-automatic, into the shingle tabs until the gun dry-fired. The rest of the nail magazines were in his truck bed, around which he spotted Javier on the phone, pacing and ignoring his employer's radio attempts. Toby trained the gun on his friend's head, squinting through an imaginary scope. He set the weapon down with futile curses as he ski-stepped sideways towards the bottom of the slope. You see where this is going. By the time Javier had taken notice and rushed back to steady the ladder's base, his boot ensnared in a coil of air compressor hose nested in the overgrown grass. He kicked his ankle free, but when he brought his foot back down, he felt the vertical hose parallel to the ladder go taut under his step like a rake handle to the face. Cuidado, he screamed at the vanishing point above. The nailer attached to the hose filled Toby's vision, tumbling and scraping for his head, just after he crossed over to the ladder and descended a couple of rungs. He twisted to the right to dodge the load barreling toward him, perhaps to catching his left hand if lucky, but the momentum of his weight carried the ladder top backwards, pivoting on its right heel just as Javier shielded his head. The nailer caromed off the ladder and disappeared into the nearby grass with a thud. But Javier's wits recovered too late to reclaim leverage on the toppling 200-pound sledgehammer of a ladder, arcing through the sky like the second hand of the doomsday clock. Weightless. Molecules inert in time suspension. The world at last rotated around Toby, and he was 10 years old again, plastered to the centrifugal wall of the gyro world. The half-digested chili dog in his gut threatening ejection on a wave of cherry limeade. Knowing his father was just an arm's length to his side, but unable to turn his head to share their revolution, the child's eyes instead locked with the ecstatic blonde goddess in perfect focus on his twelve. Clouds shrieking the blue yonder as Robert Plant wailed, Love! In a sea of reverb and tree limbs and sparks and nothingness. Voltage equals current times resistance. Substation Toby transformed 7,200 volts into cardiac arrest the instant the ladder contacted the power line a mere eight feet from the eave. Death took his hand and completed her circuit before he even hit the flaming earth. Okay, and uh, once again, that was Gordon Highland doing a reading at Noir at the Bar in St. Louis. You can find more on Gordon Highland at gordonhighland.com. I thought that voicemail thing was really clever. That was, and uh, <laughs> I, I fought, I actually, when I was cutting this up and everything, I fought myself whether I wanted to just leave it as the actual, you know, recording we did or the, but I, I just think you get a little bit more out of it with that cleaner edit. You know, you think Gordon was maybe just being lazy and it was his way not to have to read that? Yes. Well, I mean, it was it was written. <laughs> yes. Long story short, yes. <laughs> there you go. 
So, um, yeah, very clever. Um, good stuff with his Stephanie Meyer story and uh, very much looking forward to reading Flashover when it is published. Absolutely. Yeah, we don't have a, a solid timeline on Flashover, but the way he made it sound like it was coming up in the next few months. So we're we're keeping our eye out for more information on that. All right, so on the next installment of the Noir at the Bar reading, um, you'll be hearing from Caleb J. Ross, who, uh, if you're a fan of the show or familiar with, uh, he's uh, probably, well, we've had him on you know, a couple times and reviewed a few of his books, so it's a, it's a name you guys should be familiar with. If you're not, get familiar with Caleb J. Ross. That's right. And uh, here's a little bit about what's coming up for books outside of these reading episodes. Um, we've got a few book reviews coming up. Uh, we've got They Say the Owl Was a Baker's Daughter by Pablo Duster. We're also going to be reading Zombie Bake Off, the latest book by Stephen Graham Jones. And a little bit down the road, there's going to be Cataclysm Baby, which is a novella by Matt Bell. Hey, Rob, you know, that was an awful lot of information. What's the best way for people to be able to keep up with what we're releasing and when we're releasing it? I would just say go to facebook.com slash bookpodcast and click like. And then anytime we update anything, it'll show up in your news feed. Cool. Until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.